I want to thank you for joining today's sermon podcast. You can find a copy of today's sermon as well as other sermons and the sermon outline from today on our church's website, www.mvcnaz.org. It is my prayer also that you will seek out a church home that recognizes the authority of the Bible. Well, this morning we're on our consecutive, uh, third consecutive Sunday, uh, talking about the validity of the Bible. Um, we started out three weeks ago um, asking the question, well, is the Bible valid? Can we trust it? How do we know this is the Word of God? And, and we kind of, well, I call it grass and folk, comparing it uh, to uh, a, a book that was written some years ago called Of Mice and Men, because it's a comparison of two men. And, but here in the Word of God, we read in the Word of God in the Old Testament that someday man will pass away. They will fade away. Everybody's going to fade away. Everything human will fade away. But the Word of God, it will stand forever. So this morning, I want to take just two verses out of the New Testament. And I invite your attention uh, to 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses thirteen I mean 16 and 17, I want to read it together, um, the Word of God. So would you stand with me as we read this morning? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Here's what the Bible says. About itself. Now, all scripture is God breathed, and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's read it again. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful to teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So that the person of God, the Christ follower, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask your blessing upon our time together. Teach us, we pray. Lord, give us great confidence as we hold your your word, that we can trust you in it. And in Jesus' name, we give you praise. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned before, there's been an attack on God's word, um, and it's nothing new. It's something that we've, we've had to deal with. So part of my question this morning is when you look at the word of God, go, for instance, to Proverbs chapter 30, verse, verse 5, where it says, every word of God is flawless. What does that mean? When we go to Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, and it says not only is every word of God flawless, but it says it is, it is like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times, it says. And we all know what seven is, right? Seven is, is the number for perfection. So God's word's been purified like silver, in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. It's perfect. Isaiah says his word will never return back to him empty. One translation uses the word void. So, so whatever God said, it's, it's never going to come back to him without accomplishing its purpose, is what the scripture goes on to say. Isaiah 55, verse 11, I believe. So his word is true. The scriptures is true. 
Now, I want to do a little review. Um, in case uh, you haven't been with us the last couple Sundays, uh, you can go online, you can catch some of this. And we're going to continue on with some of the comparisons of the Word of God, the Old and the New Testament, with ancient literature. Uh, talk a little bit about that. I think we're going to talk a little bit about inerrancy this morning, meaning what do we mean when we say the Bible is without error? That sometimes that causes confusion. So what does it mean? So um, we'll do a little re- 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 review. Uh, how many of you have ever, uh, you've ever heard of uh, Paul Yonggi Cho? Uh, he, Paul Cho is the, uh, the pastor. I think he's retired now, but um, he was, he's the pastor of what is the largest church in the world um, in, in South Korea. Can you believe that? He was a Buddhist preparing to be a priest, and he met Jesus and got saved. He started his own church in a small room. And now it's, are you sitting down? Everybody sitting down? It's over a million active members. Uh, some churches, you know, have dead people on the rolls. Did you know that? Uh, Pastor, I'm not talking about people on the pew. I'm talking about people that actually died. And they still, they're still there. Well, these are a million active members. And I still remember as a young pastor reading uh, Paul Youngie Cho's David Yonggi Cho, they call him now, his very first church, it was called More Than Numbers. And, and he's a very humble man. He starts out his book saying, people have told me I need to write about what's going on. He said, I really don't have a whole lot to say. Um, I'm just doing what God tells me to do. This man prays one to three hours a day. They say he's the worst golfer in the world because if you go golfing with him, all he does is after he takes his shot, he goes over, he sits down, he starts praying again. So he's a prayer warrior. And in fact, he repeats a lot of his, his stuff. And his board would ask him, people would ask him, well, why do you repeat? And he said, well, I repeat because you don't listen. <laughs> he said, I repeat because the statistics show that it takes 16 to 17 times to say the same thing over before people actually believe it. 16 to... So he said, I'm going to repeat. And he said, if you don't like it, well, then go start your own church. Or fire me and I'll go start another church. A <laughs> little bit of humor right there, just for a moment. Okay. So, repeating is good for us. So, let's, let's kind of go where we've been. Here's a little review. So, when God was saying, how do I get my word to the people? He created us. Now, he wants to speak his heart into our hearts. How am I going to do that? And he chose a people that we know as the, the Hebrews, the Jews. And, and he instilled in them a great reverence not only for the relationship through this monarchy, oh, there's only one God, monotheism, pardon me, a monotheism. So not, there's, there's not many gods, there's only one God. I'm the only God that you're going to serve because I'm the only God that really is. So he establishes this relationship with them and he gives them his word. He does it through the prophets, through scribes. And those prophets and scribes, they took his word, they promoted it to the people They proclaimed his word, and by the way, you better not be a false prophet because they'll kill you. If whatever you prophesied did not come through, they'd kill you by stoning. That was the so try that as a pastor today. Woo! Better be a little careful up here, right? You guys bring your rocks this morning, did you? Any rocks out there? No rotten tomatoes, though, right? Someone asked me a few weeks ago, "Well, pastor, how's it going at the church?" I said, "Well, it's going okay. They haven't thrown any rotten tomatoes yet." He said, "Be careful, pastor. It's not tomato season." All right. Yeah, if you if you are a false prophet, they'd kill you on the spot. 
So it better not be a false prophet. And, and so what I, what I told you was that uh, there's actually three different, let's say, uh, types of scribes. There's the Sophrim scribe. And they were, they, they were called to be the preservers of the Scripture. They, they made sure that the, the Scripture was held together intact and it was okay. They preserved it. They, they, super, they watched over it. Um, the next group was um, the Talmudic scribes. And I told you last week that I'm going to put some of this on the screen just so you can see it because it's a little hard to, to catch on to and hang on to. But this was the second class. And these guys, they kind of upped it up a little bit from the Sophrim scribes. The Talmudic scribes, uh, they guarded the Scripture and they interpreted the Scripture. So they began to say, this is what it means. Uh, you remember all the laws that came from the Jews in Jesus' time? They had over 600 laws. Thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Had to do with washing, eating, you name it. Walking. They had all these rules and regulations. This is kind of where they came from because they interpreted the scripture. This is what it means. The third group was the Masoretics. The Masorite uh, scribes, they, they went far above and beyond any other of the scribes what they did. So they would copy the scriptures meticulously. They had these very stringent rules, and I'm not going to go through them this morning. I went through them last week, but if you want to catch up with it, get online and go back to last week's sermon, and, and you'll see they had all these rules that they had to go through just to, just to write and copy the Scripture. So now for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years even, these scribes took one copy, and they would, they would copy that Scripture down, and, and, and we never really knew how reliable these these. these these copies were until 1947. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about how do we, let's get out of the religious world, forget religion for a moment, and let's go to, uh, let, let's just go to um, uh, the secular field. Uh, let's go to our, our universities and our schools and let's talk to our historians that help us understand how to interpret ancient literature. Well, they will tell you that there are two standards of evaluation. For ancient literature. Doesn't matter where you go. We look at two things to see if what was written hundreds or thousands of years ago, how do we know it's reliable today? Well, there's two things we look at. Number one is the time interval between the original and the copy. How long did it take for whoever wrote that the first time? How long did it take for that to be copied? Because, you know, in those days, they didn't have computers, right? They had to copy things by hand. They did it on parchment, on reeds, and, and, and so it was a, a long, lengthy, laborious process to take something and copy it again, copy it again, copy it again, copy it again. How do you know this copy here that was written ten times later is equal to the original? The Masorites were so meticulous, I told you last week, they considered the tenth, the eleventh, the fiftieth copy to be just as ordained and anointed as the first, inspired as the first, because they were so meticulous. And, what, and the second rule then was the number of copies. How many copies do you have of the first one? Okay, so he wrote this 100 years before Christ. How many copies are there? How many fragments are there? Is there one? Is there two? Is there five? Now, now this, these rules apply to any ancient literature. Forget the Bible for a moment. We're talking about ancient literature. So I'm going to show you some of that this morning a little bit, but... Uh, and they say, okay, it's, it's, um, 
This is what it is. Now let's do some some comparison. Remember, we started out of grass and folk because the grass is going to die and God's word is going to live forever. Comparisons. So we look at the Old Testament a little bit. Before 1947, the earliest copies that we had were dated about 900 years after Jesus. Okay? However, in 1947, two, I think I told you the story last week, right? Two shepherd boys in the hot desert arid area of Israel, throwing stones, as boys always do, skipping rocks, throwing them into the caves, and all of a sudden heard all this crashing pottery. They climbed up there and they find these scrolls. And the bottom line was they found scrolls in a lot of different caves that had been preserved because of the hot arid dry. And, and, and what they found was a total of 223 brand new manuscripts. How many were born before 1947? Just put your hands up and confess just for a moment. Got a few. Got a few. Okay. How many were born after 1947? Okay. So this is pretty relevant to you. Okay. Uh, Dathan, how old are you? 21. What year were you born in? 2002. Okay. How many years is that after 1947? A lot? Come on, you mathematicians. Help me out there. What I'm telling you is this is relevant to Nathan's age. This happened in his era, in our generation. So in 1947, these shepherd boys found these tremendous finds, and what they found was 223 brand new manuscripts dated. Now remember, one of the questions is for validity, how many copies are there? Well, here we have 223 brand new manuscripts dated. And guess when they're dated? Not 900 years after Christ. Woohoo, come on. 125 years before Jesus. Which makes them almost a thousand years older than the ones we had before. And the ones we had before were pretty good. But now we got full copies of like the Old Testament Isaiah. And fragments galore. And when they begin to compare what we have today to what they found that was dated 125 BC, in 95% of the cases, it was absolutely identical. Think of it. You got a, you got a scroll, it's dark light, you've got a lantern. You've gone through the whole rigmarole as a Jewish scribe. You've washed your hands. You've put on the garb. You've got a brand new quill. You've got brand new ink. And you start writing. If you make one mistake, you've got to start all over again. You've got to throw, the, throw that whole puppy away. And now after one copy and another copy and another copy and another copy, for hundreds of years, another copy and hundreds of years, another copy. These copies here, 95% identical all the way back to the original. Now, that's pretty something. Uh, you want to do some reading on this? Uh, let's see. Josh McDowell might give you some help. Uh, evidence that demands a verdict. Uh, another book, More Evidence that Demands a Verdict. Uh, Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. These guys are apologetics. They argue for the faith. They teach us the science behind why we believe what we believe. Ha! There's a thought. Follow the science. 
95%. And by the way, the 5% that's not identical, uh, very minor things like there wasn't a comma. Uh, instead of a capital B, it was a small b. Um, nothing, absolutely nothing to destroy the validity of the accuracy of the Word of God for thousands of years. I'm telling you, when you pick up this Bible, you can bet, you can, you can bet your life on it. According to any evaluation standard that we have in our own westernized scientific logical world, it, it, literature of the world does not hold a candle to what we have here. They don't even hold a candle. So let, let's just, just think about a couple of spot, thoughts here. Uh, let's go to ancient literature. That's, that's not biblical. This is extra biblical stuff. So Julius Caesar. So I'm sure you've all heard of Julius Caesar and his Gaelic Wars. How many copies do we have of the Gaelic Wars? Well, ten copies. Ten copies. Are you doing the math here? Not 223 and thousands of fragments. Um, the earliest copies didn't happen until a thousand years after from the original. And we consider that adequate. Adequate to verify. It came from this dude called Julius Caesar. Uh, what about Livy's history of Rome? That's a pretty incredible piece of literature for us to understand what Roman life was like. Well, we only have one partial manuscript and 19 copies dated somewhere between 400 and 1,000 years from the original. Uh, what about Homer's Iliad? Anybody ever read Homer's Iliad? Sure you have. How many copies do we have of Homer's Iliad? Homer, what do you got to say? 643 manuscripts. manuscripts a 400-year time gap from the original. Oh, that compares to the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, a discovery of 223. Um, this, this material, I've seen some of it. It's scattered all around the world in our libraries, in our universities, in our museums. And you can see them today. So let's go to the New Testament. The, the reality is, nothing that we have today compares at all to the New Testament, what we have in the New Testament. How many fragments do we have here, or manuscripts? 25,000 manuscripts or fragments. What's the earliest from the original? Well, you can take the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth gospel. The gospel of John, one of the, what we call the synoptics. Um, the fourth gospel, we have a copy within 50 years of its original writing. Count them, five years old, 50 years. Uh, so, so hold on just for a moment. Now, now, Dethian, how old did you see you were? 21. Twice his age, approximately. Uh, we have a copy of John's original. So, those, so there's nothing. I mean, God did an incredible thing when he gave us his word. And using the accepted standard of accreditation, evaluation for textual reliability of ancient literature, 
I'm telling you. It's amazing what we have. When we hold this book, when we hold this up, and we say this is God's word, well, you can pretty well count on it. Pretty well count on it. If you just want to do the math and take a westernized, scientific, logical approach to what we have in the Bible. Um, now, uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time. It's 1133. I'm going to try to get you out there early this morning uh, for good behavior. You've been awfully good this morning. It's been amazing how good you've been. I haven't seen any note writing, no passing notes in church, nobody talking. Well, I saw one person, but I'm not going to say anything. Um, so here's the big question. Here's the big question this morning. How do we interpret what we have? Why are there seems to be so many different interpretations? In fact, how do we, what's the best translation of the Bible? What's the best Bible to read? I have people ask me all the time, what's the best Bible? Uh, i tell you what I like to do. I've done it for years. I like to take five or six Bibles, six or eight Bibles. In fact, there used to be a Bible called the Layman's Parallel. Anybody have one of those? A Layman's Parallel. And it had uh, four translations of the Bible all on, on, on uh, two pages. And you could compare the translations. It's pretty cool. Uh, one, did anybody ever read the, the uh, Amplified Bible? Uh, it always takes five times longer to uh, read um, whatever it says in the Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> I, love you. I love it when people bring the Amplified Bible to uh, welcome class because everybody goes around and reads their own translation. When it comes to the Amplified Bible, it just goes on and on and on and on and on because it's Amplified. What's the best version of the Bible? Well, there's a lot of good versions of the Bible it's a good thing to take a bunch of them and compare them to each other. Because here's the bottom line. Once you read the scriptures on multiple uh, versions, translations, the Holy Spirit's big enough to translate for you and give you the truth of the word of God. He knows how to convict the world of truth and of lies. That's his job. When I was a youth pastor back in the uh, 80s, uh, some of you don't know this, the way I met my wife, Linda, um, I was... Uh, I was uh, a senior in, in college at Point Loma Nazarene University. And uh, I was a youth pastor, and uh, it was time for a change. And so, um, so I, uh, I began to pray about it, and, and it, was, it was obvious that it was, the Lord was saying, hey, you need, to, you need to change. So I went to a professor, Dr. Cliff Fisher, who oversaw pastors and guys who were in religion department. And he suggested I go to a Methodist church. And I said, well, I'm a Nazarene. Why would I go to a Methodist? Well, he said, just, he said, they're a holiness church. They used to be EUB, Evangelical United Brethren. Why don't you go there and check it out? I told him no three times till finally he sat on behind his desk. I still remember him sitting by his desk. He said, Les, and he's a very non-directive counselor. He said, Les, I'm going to suggest to you that you just go interview, try it out, and see. And you might find out it's not for you, but you might, you might be surprised. Maybe it is. And guess what? I went and I interviewed. I not only stayed, but I took the pastor's daughter. She's sitting right here. And it didn't take me very long. I went there in 1973, and we were married in... 1974 is the answer, honey. 1974. <laughs> and we just celebrated our 48th anniversary this summer. Pretty cool. Yeah. 
how in the world did I get off on that story? Where was I? Girls, where were I? Man, you want to you want to finish my sermon? You're doing so good. So, uh, what I remember as being a youth pastor there, so I took the kids and I challenged them to memorize the entire book, uh, the entire chapter of John, First John chapter one. And then I asked them, uh, take the the Bible and. And I don't want you to use any commentaries, but you just pray over the Word of God every day as you memorize. And I had a, a dozen kids do that out of, the, out of the youth group. And you know what I found out? I found out these kids knew as much as the scholars who wrote the commentaries that I read without reading the commentaries. You know what that is? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. You read the Word of God, and He'll straighten it out for you. He, that's what He did. That's His job. To teach us the truth. Remember that? To remind us of what Jesus says. Remember the role of the Holy Spirit? So that's what he does. So how do we, how, how do we know? What's, what's the best translation? I don't know. There's a lot of good ones. And, and, you know, I know the guys that say, well, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> well, Paul wasn't even around when the King James was written. So I don't even understand that statement. It's beyond my level of education. So um, here's, an, here's an interesting thing. There's a lot of arguments about inerrancy. What does it mean that the Bible is without error, that's inerrant? Now, we know there's some inconsistencies in the Bible, but they're just like the old copies. They're, they're, they're non-consequential. So that's why, was it last week I read to you out of the manual of the Church of the Nazarene that says, we believe the Bible is inerrant, it's without errant, and all things pertain to salvation. So now there's a guy by the name of Bob Hunter. He happens to be a nasty, I mean a Nazarene. And uh, he, he wrote a little article, and I'm going to give you what, what he said. I think that's where we're going. Um, one, two, three. Oh, here we go. So uh, let me do this. I'm going to go to the last page because he has three different understandings of what it means when we say the Bible is without error. All right? Now the Nazarenes, he's got them in the middle here. And he admits right away in his article that this is, this is not perfect. But let's, let's go back and let's see what he says um, in a couple of these. Uh, let's start with this one here, which is the Bible, total biblical inerrancy. So this is someone to one side, total to one side, um, where they say the Bible has absolutely no mistakes whatsoever, period. And they tend to read the Bible literally. Everything has to be literal. Now, if you know anything about Bible history and study, you interpret different literature with different rules. For instance, let's go to a parable. You don't interpret parables the way you interpret narrative, right? A parable, typically, the rules for interpreting a parable is, number one, a parable normally has one main point. So what's the one main point of the story Jesus is telling? Because Jesus taught in parables, right? Uh, He talked about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Three parables all together in the Gospel of Luke. What's the one point of the three different stories? Well, the point is the joy of recovery of that which was lost. A lady lost a coin. She doesn't know where to find it. She swept all over the place. And when she found it, she took it to the neighbor and says, Yeehaw, I found my coin. Uh, the, lost, uh, the, what, the lost sheep. Uh, a shepherd lost his sheep. And he goes all over the place looking for the sheep. 
And when he finds the sheep, he calls all his farmers together. He says, I've lost the, I found the lost sheep. How about the lost son? Now, there's a good one. Huh? And what's the point of the, of the, par- parodic- uh, the, the prodigal son? The parable of the prodigal son? That's an easy one to say, right? The point is the joy of recovery. It was lost. And the father says, thank you, son, for coming home. And he throws a big party. He blows up balloons and he puts out those, what do you, streamers, thank you, and poppers. These girls really help me every Sunday morning, I'll tell you what. So, so total biblical inerrancy, they're normally fundamentalist. I wouldn't ex- expect you to uh, understand all these terms, but let me just go through them quickly because I'm getting a little too long here. It's inerrant throughout. It's propositional. It's the trustworthiness of Scripture is everything. Not that we don't believe that. Original manuscripts are inerrant. God does not err. We believe a lot of this stuff. How how can people trust a document containing errors is one of their arguments. Uh, Wesley claimed the Bible did not contain errors. Therefore, we must. Um, Non-Wesleyan ideas present absolute sovereignty, total uh, human depravity. Uh, those are more Calvinistic ideas, and I realize I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, but um, a lot of you get this stuff. Okay, so the, the, the next position I want to show you on the other side, I'm going to go past this soteriological, is the New Testament or the New Inspiration. So this would be come more like a, uh, uh, more like a, a newer idea of how to translate the Bible uh, um, that, that steers away from everything we just said. It's maybe on the opposite spectrum. The Bible inspires constructive theology and ongoing revelation. The Bible, properly understood, contains many errors correctable through scholarly pursuit and thoughtful reflection. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Um, uh, we've had professors speaking of the openness of God theology. And when I've talked to some of our leaders about it, they say, well, there are theolo- theologians, um, uh, so we need to listen to them. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm one of our theologians. I'm a pastor. So I'm a theologian, and I have a right to speak as well. And I'm a little un- uncomfortable uh, when we throw away the three O's of God, the omniscience, the omnipotence, and the omnipresence of God. Those are very orthodox, traditional views of God that I believe if we start playing with, we're messing with deity. Now, call me ignorant, but continue on. Uh, reinterpretation and reimagination of the sacred text is expected. A generous application of reason and experience. At times, unorthodox, controversial, and liberal. I would say amen to that. That's a Jesus seminar style uh, criticism and skepticism. Um, yada, yada, yada. Okay. I realize some of that needs to be unpacked. That you don't get it all. So, uh, if you go online, you pick this up. You can do a little research and figure it out. If you have any questions, you can talk to me later on or I'll spend time with you. So I need to go back to the soteriological. A soteriology is simply the a study of salvation. Soteriology. When we study salvation. So the soteriological, which is kind of in between the two, it, has, it marries kind of like the best of both, not the worst. And that's where Nazarenes tend to be. So uh, the soteriological... Uh, let's see, how do I do this thing? I've got to go what, two more, I think, to get you there. Did I do the wrong thing, brothers? I did, huh? Okay. That was scary live worship. 
It's better than dead worship, huh? Okay. A soteriological inerrancy. This is the witness of Scripture primarily exists for salvation. So why argue over things you can't win the battle on? Uh, how about the mode of baptism? Why do we dunk? Well, sometimes we don't dunk. If someone's an invalid on a bed getting ready to die, we sprinkle or we pour. And we consider all of them to be valid modes of baptism. But some people say you're not really baptized until you're dunked. Okay. How about women in ministry? We, we, have, we have all kinds of examples of women in the ministry in the Old and New Testament. But some churches won't allow women to teach and preach. That's fine. But I, I, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. And I could go on. What about your, your idea of eschatology, the study of last days? There are all kinds of them. So which view do you take? Which translation do you believe? So um, formational, uh, functional inerrancy is not absolute. Uh, uh, in other words, inerrancy is not absolute in the terms of its functionality. Uh, the Bible is trustworthy in faith and practice despite its many difficulties. Uh, how many would agree that the Bible can often be difficult? Sure, sure enough. A dynamic inspiration occurred resulting in a reliable message, and I love this, but one that possibly contained dynamic synergy of divine revelation and human participation. It's orthodox. And they say the battle for the Bible is unnecessary. I'm not sure I agree with that uh, comment, that idea, because um, it goes in other places. I, I'm trying to give you different positions of what we mean when we say inerrant. We're not fundamentalists, that is, that we, we interpret the Scripture in all places and ways, literally. Because we understand there's too much dialogue and difference between a parable and narrative is, is, is the idea that I gave you. Uh, did Jonah swallow the whale? Well, I believe he did. Some guys don't. They don't think it's possible, but I think with God, all things possible. So, Okay. Is it, a, is it a hill I'm ready to die on? No. I'll tell you the hill I'm ready to die on, that Jesus died for my sins on the cross of Calvary, and if I'm not a believer in Jesus and he's not forgiving my sins, I'm going to hell. That's kind of it. Might sound a little crass, but that's the bottom line. So um, I can tell you this. I love this thing. It's guided my life. It's instructed me. It's corrected me. It's led me. It's disciplined me. It's given me hope. It's brought me healing. When the Bible says this thing here is active, it's dynamic, it's not static or dead, it's alive, and it compares it to a sword that cuts both ways. I've experienced all of that and more. Have you not? It's not like reading Homer's Iliad or Gaelic Wars or any other secular book. This has been inspired by God. It's been breathed into the heart of mankind. And man has spoken what God has given him. That's our understanding of inspiration and inerrancy. Well, is that preaching or is that teaching over there, Rich? What did I do? Teach, I taught. Someone said both. You know, I think I have said you can be a teacher without being a preacher, but you can't be a preacher without being a teacher. They go hand in glove. And sometimes we need to break it down because the reality is when you walk out of here, people are going to question the Bible, and I hope I've given you a little bit of an arsenal to share in love and grace and mercy, to say, no, I, I believe in this, and I believe there's valid reason. 
I have as much reason to believe in this as you do in not believing it, and probably even more so because I've seen it work in my life and the life of millions of other people. Amen? Wow. Isn't there a phrase that the proof is in the pudding? It's not the best theology, but somehow it seems to me to fit. Oh, I love you, church. Thanks for allowing me to share the word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Oh, what would we be without God's word to guide us? What would we be? I don't know how people live without it. It's such a word of encouragement to my soul. You ever gone through a hard time? Go to the Word of God. He will encourage you, lift you up, bless you, honor you. He will restore you. He will make you fresh and new just by reading His Word. Because it's a dynamic, powerful, double-cutting-edge sword. Yeah. So thank you, Lord, for your Word. I want to thank you for joining today's sermon podcast. You can find a copy of today's sermon as well as other sermons and the sermon outline from today on our church's website, www.mvcnaz.org. It is my prayer also that you will seek out a church home that recognizes the authority of the Bible.